Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jim Glassman, the head, head economist for commercial banking at J.P. Morgan Chase, and we've reached him on our phone lines. Jim, great to speak with you, as always. Let's start with the, the broad question here, what you're looking for in, uh, in today's number. How's this report different from the last one? Probably not too different. And I think, like you guys have been saying, I don't think it's the entrails of these reports anymore that matter. It's the message that it's telling us about the economy. And I think what it's telling us is we're doing pretty good. We still, the, the fact that we can have these kinds, this kind of job growth with an economy that in theory is close to full employment tells you, well, where are these people coming from? It must be that we're still not really at our full capacity. So to me, the most important message uh, that we're getting from the job market is that we still got a room to run here, and that's a very positive story for the equity market. And even for the Fed, I mean, it tells, you, it tells you the Fed needs to slowly normalize interest rates, but frankly, there's no big rush. Where are we in the, the business cycle, uh, as you see it? When you, when you look at the economic data, when you look at the, the markets, where do you think we are? I think we're probably at the top of the ninth inning. But, and I say that because I think, I think we need another year or so of this kind of growth to pull everybody back into the job market that has, is still... A lot of young people still, about, about a million and a half people that dropped out that are coming back, and all those part-timers. But I think the more important point is the game's not over at the, at the ninth inning. I think this is going to go extra innings, and the reason I say that is we don't see inflation problems like we that normally make you think about end of cycle, and we don't see financial excesses that make you think about uh, new problems brewing. So I, th- I think we've got a very good chance of going extra innings. I don't think there's anything many of us can look at and say, this is a problem, and this is going to throw us off course. Jim, let me ask you about those young people you, you mentioned here. When you look at wage growth, which is still uh, lagging, what's the role that those young people are, are playing? Do you, do you think that they're principally responsible here for dragging down wage growth? You know, I don't, but I think the, I think the um, sense you get about what's true unemployment is kind of an approximate idea about how far the economy is from full capacity. I think maybe the part-time, the involuntary part-time guys probably put, put more pressure on wages, but I think the problem is everybody has is we're taking the official unemployment rate at face value. And we're assuming 4.5%, and we're assuming full employment is 45 to 5 I think that's maybe what's off course. I think, personally, when you look at a metric of unemployment that's kind of apples to apples, similar to what we're used to looking at, we may be more like 5.5%. And we're beginning to argue, we're beginning to debate, is the full employment level closer to 4%? Mm. Well, if that were true, you, you would say, oh, okay, the labor market's doing fine, but I wouldn't describe it as overly tight. So honestly, I think wages are doing a little better. They're running a little above inflation. Uh, that's a little better than they've been. But I wouldn't describe. I doesn't. It doesn't. I don't find this to be a mystery yet. That uh, despite the good sense of tone of the job market, we're not seeing big acceleration in uh-huh. wages because businesses have to manage things in a way that keeps them competitive. They're not going to go crazy. Jim Glassman with us from J.P. Morgan as we begin our job day coverage. David Gurr and Tom Keene, thrilled you're with us uh, nationwide. Jim Glassman, why are there 20,000 people lined up to work at Amazon? I've gotten tons of mail on this. I get the whole economist full employed idea, but then why are 20,000 people lined up to pack cardboard boxes for Amazon? Yeah, I think it's probably telling you we're not really as tight as people might think. And uh, 
you know, part of the problem is there's a lot of disruption going on because of the Amazon phenomenon. So maybe people are saying this is the future. I'm, you know, they're they're trying to shift gears a little bit and they take advantage of what they think is coming. But it probably is a testimony to the disruption that's coming to the whole retail sector, also from what you see going on with Amazon. Let me ask you just on a sector-by-sector -sector basis what you're watching, looking at your note here about uh, auto sales, what we saw in auto sales here, a little bit of disappointment over these last couple of days. How's that playing out in terms of what sectors are hiring at this point, Jim? You know, I think the auto industry was the first one out because credit, uh, tight credit really made it, a, it was a nightmare for the auto industry. When the economy opened up and credit began to flow, the auto industry was the first one out. And so I think uh, what, we're, what we're seeing is that we're sort of, the fact that car sales are kind of stabilizing now, and we don't know how much of the Uber phenomenon was driving sales last year, but I think uh, it's telling you that the economy is becoming more mature. We're starting to see, it's really hard when you look around, we're seeing a lot of every industry is picking up jobs. So we're still looking at a picture of a tide that's rising and it's helping everybody. Obviously, the tech sector, where everybody wants to be, young kids anyway, uh, that, that's the hottest. But the truth is, healthcare, tech, financial services, information, business services, those are all the areas. And they, it doesn't look to me yet, yet like anyone is dominating. It just looks to me like the kind of thing you normally see when we're in a generally recovering economy. So it still looks a lot like a recovery story. Jim, how, is, is there consensus about how many jobs we need to be adding month after month to keep that unemployment rate from, from rising? Is that something that's uh, more art than science? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact is, uh, if you look at the working age population, that's the easiest thing you can do. Look at the population between 16 years of age and let's call it 70 or 66. It's real clear. The growth of the working age population has slowed down from about 200,000 per, per, per month uh, about a decade ago to about 75,000 per month. So that, that's why all of us say we think the steady state growth in, the, in jobs needs to be about 75,000. Anything above that will okay. tend to bring unemployment down. But the problem is there's still a lot of guys that dropped out. So that there's a lot of guys who got pushed out during the recession. So they're slowly coming back. And so you can have a period here where the you know, labor force can grow faster than that 75,000 just because we're still recovering right. from the damage from the recession. But in defense of a president jawboning in the last hour about 3% GDP, mm -hmm. Carl Riccadonna covered with that with us huh. on surveillance. Jim Glassman, 75,000 per month non-farm payrolls is totally unacceptable to both Democrats, both Republicans, or the governor of West Virginia, who's both. I, I yeah, mean, because our, bench, our benchmarks are coming from the old days. Those, those, those benchmarks we used to have are obsolete. And I think politicians haven't yet figured this out because they keep talking about getting America back to work. But the truth is most of us economists think America is getting back to work, and we're pretty much back to work. Here's the problem. There's like, in the last 10 years, 20 million people... Uh, the, the, the people who were 55 years of age and older, that population has increased like 20 million. The young people, millennials are up about 2.5 million, 40-year-olds down about a million and a half. So really what's going on here is the population, because we're aging, we got more and more people going into retirement. So we have to change our idea. This is not the same labor market that we've been living with for the last several decades. 
Jim Glassman with us. Jim Glassman, the head economist for commercial banking at J.P. Morgan Chase. On this jobs day here in the U.S., just take you through what we expect for the rest of the day. Of course, those numbers come out from the Labor Department at 8.30 Wall Street time. Alan Kruger uh, is going to join us as well this morning of Princeton uh, University. We're also going to speak with Bill Gross, of course, if Janice Henderson, once those numbers come out, get his reaction to those. And then we're going to hear from Gary Cohn, uh, Gary Cohn, the head of the National Economic uh, Council. So a tremendous, a great perspective throughout the morning on jobs day. And then, of mm. course, as I mentioned, we're following uh, this story out of Washington uh, as well, centering on Robert Mueller, the special counsel, uh, going to a grand jury in Washington, D.C. for help with his uh, investigation. Squarely, though, our focus on, on the jobs numbers. Can we say time. Chairman Cohn yet? Is that ah. premature? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see how our colleagues address him this morning. But uh, <clears throat> a lot of speculation, as you allude to there, about who might be the next chairman oh, of the Federal see. Reserve. Mohamed Alarian is in Paris. Dr. Alarian, good morning. In, in the back of your wonderful book, The Only Game in Town, you have the power of scenario analysis. What are the scenarios Chair Yellen has to come up with as she and Governor Carney and others battle the hard data of disinflation? Well, Carney and Yellen have very different issues. And thank you, Tom, for having me on. For Yellen, it's the flattening of the Phillips curve. In other, in other words, why is it that wages and inflation have not responded to what has been very impressive job creation? Carney is in a different position. He's worried about something else. He's worried about stagflation. That is a slow economy, but high inflation. So both central banks are facing pretty unprecedented situations and their instruments are simply not giving them enough information right now to provide them with the confidence they need on the policy front. What more could, could policymakers be doing in, in Washington right now? I'm curious what you're going to be looking for today, of course, but uh, beyond that, uh, what would you like to see Washington doing more of? So what I'd like to see, and I'm not the only one, is a handoff. A handoff from excessive reliance on central bank to a more comprehensive policy response that acts on demand, supply and debt. The longer we wait for this handoff, the greater the risk of collateral damage from relying just on monetary policy. And that's true not just for the U.S., it's also true for the ECB, the Bank of Japan. Both of them also face the same dilemma. What happened there? Did somebody drop the baton halfway down Pennsylvania Avenue? That was supposed to have happened, wasn't it? So 2010 happened. The Tea Party then you got the polarization of Congress, and then you got a certain amount of moral hazard, reliance on central banks. You saw that uh, in Europe as well. Dr. Larian, uh, Richard Claret has sent me along a paper. Pedro de Costa at Business Insiders written it up as well. Yasser Abdi and Stephen Daniger over at the IMF. You held court at the IMF for years. They have a fabulous paper on technology and the effect of labor, and they go into routinization, they go into how technology's changed everything we do, and also offshoring. Is Chair Yellen, Governor Carney, is all of our angst about jobs, are we being overwhelmed by the new technology? Yes, but partly. So let me explain. There certainly is a structural and secular component to it. And that is understanding that technology is changing the way we do things. The how is changing because of technology. And we don't yet fully understand yeah. that. But that is a structural and secular issue. There's also a good old cyclical issue. 
which is we've had deficient aggregate demand and we've let potential output come down through policy inaction. And it's important to make that, that distinction because you can do a lot on the second one, but it requires that other policymakers get into the game and get off the sideline. The president has been a pinata recently, but he's in West Virginia, his territory last night, talking about infrastructure. Would those kind of programs move the needle on potential GDP, or do we just give up and get used to two point whatever percent run rate? It would be a tragedy if we gave up. We can move the needle. We can certainly move it towards 3% through the trifecta of infrastructure, pro-growth tax reform, and deregulation. So these are three things that the president has spoken about. And that let's not forget, President Obama also had an infrastructure program. President Obama also was looking for tax reform. Um, in a, in a perfect world, you'd go beyond that and you'd deal with labor retooling and retraining. You would deal with the education system. You would deal with elements that talk to productivity. But no, Tom, we shouldn't just sit there. We, we can get it back towards 3%, but it requires Congress to step up to its economic governance. We're talking to you uh, from Paris. Uh, let me ask you just the degree to which uh, excitement in the global economy has shifted to Europe from, from the U.S. What are we seeing Uh, In the context of the global economy in Europe today, how has that changed? A lot more optimism. I'm I'm very struck by the optimism that one hears here. Um, Euro gloom has given way to Euro optimism. It helped by the latest GDP number. It's helped by the election of Macron. So there's a sense here of optimism. Um, I think that the economics tells you that it's not enough to move the soft data. We saw the soft data move in the U.S. in a major way a few months ago, but that didn't translate to the hard data. So it's important that more be done. But the big difference, David, is there's a lot more optimism. Are you coming to us from the cafe of Le Grand Café Capucine? <laughs> no, but I'm talking, to you, I'm talking to you from the Bloomberg offices. And as usual, they are beautiful offices in a wonderful location. It's my first time here. And oh. I think I'll try to visit more often. No, you should visit more often. In fact, we should visit with you. I would suggest, Colin of the Twins, that we, David Gurr and I do a road trip with Dr. Alary into the Paris office. That sounds good. I'm thinking the last week of August. <laughs> no, no, let's do, it in, let's do it in September because it's across the street from the opera and the opera season starts um, in September. So let's do it in September. Very no, good. No. We'll you get the that, tickets. We'll you do that tickets. in September. We'll you can pick the opera and we'll all attend. Uh, Dr. Larian, thank you so much from our uh, offices and studios in uh, Paris, France. Greatly appreciated uh, this morning. Of course, writing for Bloomberg View and Dr. Larian affiliated with Allianz, among others. Really can't say enough about his book. It was my book of the summer. I don't know when it was. The only game in town, central banks, uh, instability as well. Really, really precious chapter on game theory from Dr. Larian uh, as well. Our coverage of Jobs Day continues now with Alan Kruger, of course, Professor of Public Policy and Economics at Princeton, former Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Great to see you uh, again, as always. Let's start just by uh, going macro, if we could. Uh, we had a, the latest read on GDP a few days ago. Can we draw a line between that and what you think we're going to see uh, today? Uh, I think they are part of the same picture. Yeah. You know, it looks to me like the economy is continuing at the same pace it has for the last few years. Uh, 
there's been no change in policy, so I'm not sure why we would expect to see much change in economic performance. Um, so I think we're still at about 2% underlying growth. Job growth is faster than uh, labor force growth. That should pull down the unemployment rate. Um, I've been a little bit disappointed that we haven't seen more wage growth. Uh, inflation's been a little bit surprising, but I suspect that those are sort of short-term phenomenon, and we'll get back on track closer to 2% inflation. Uh, when, when you look at all that this, this administration could be doing, that this Congress could be doing, if it's, prioritization is the, is the watchword in Washington, I think, as, as we've seen the, the, the debate over health care unfold. And uh, now there's a question over what we're going to see when it comes to, to tax reform. When it comes to the labor economy and what policies they could implement there, what would be most effective? What if you were still in the White House counseling the president, would you advise him to do? Uh, my advice would be to tear up the proposal that they endorsed on immigration reform a couple of days earlier. Um, that would be number one. And if you just look at the Congressional Budget Office report on the bipartisan bill that passed the Senate that would have increased immigration to the U.S., legal immigration, that concluded GDP growth would be faster, income growth would be faster, productivity growth would be higher, we'd have more innovation, we'd create more companies uh, if we reformed our immigration system in that direction. So that would be point number one on the labor market. Uh, I like their plans on infrastructure. Uh, I'd like to see them spell them out in more detail. I'd like to see them have a strategy to have Congress pass them. Uh, but I think that's an area where there is widespread agreement that the U.S. needs more investment that will help labor, that will help businesses, that will yeah. help the economy down the road. Alan, you're cited in my paper du jour. I've, I've been quoted folks already saying Olivier Blanchard's effort in Naples, Italy this summer was just brilliant. And out of the IMF, we get a working paper where you're cited. David Card, I believe, is cited as well which basically says routinization and offshoring have changed the American labor economy. Is technology the killer? Is technology a jobs killer? Or can we say it still adds value? Or is there just two Americas? Well, I think it's more in the two America vein. It's not a jobs killer in the sense we've seen uh, reasonable job growth uh, over the last 25 years. The problem is the nature of the jobs. The problem is that... Uh, jobs in the middle have been disappearing while they've been growing at the top and the bottom. Uh, the problem is that we're seeing fewer long-term employment relationships. We're seeing more workers move into self-employment, uh, more gig employment, workers left without a safety net. Our labor laws are not really set up for a big independent workforce. Um, but technology has brought lots of benefits to the U.S. economy and to consumers as well. Um, and ultimately, we need technology to raise productivity growth, raise living standards, improve uh, life expectancy, and so on. So I think we need a better strategy for adjusting in the face of the computer information technology uh, that's been developing. We'll come back here with you in just, just a minute, but let me ask you a quick question about immigration. And you mentioned the speech the president gave the, the legislation he embraced this week. Why does it seem like a conversation about immigration has gotten harder and harder to have in this country? Well, it's very polarizing, yeah. and um, I was um, disappointed by the uh, White House's position uh, on um, immigration this week because to inject immigration reform in the middle of tax reform, infrastructure, and just doing the basics of government. In fact, I think the Trump administration would be well served, and I think they'll discover pretty soon they should just focus on getting Congress to do the basics, pass a budget, raise the debt limit do so without drama. That's in the best interest of the American people. And injecting um, 
an immigration bill, which is not going to pass, really just done for political reasons, mm. uh, I think is quite unfortunate because all it does in the end is divide the American well, people. David Gurr, right now, four minutes, 38 seconds, precious time with Alan Kruger. <laughs> Uh, Alan, great to great to see you once again. Uh, we were chatting during the break here about work you're doing on on music. Now, I think this is this is fascinating, and your your interests are varied, uh, as we know. What are you doing exactly when it comes to the the music industry? What are you looking at? Well, a long time ago, I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the Polestar concert convention, and that got me involved in studying the music industry. So, together with a group of other economists, I've started the Music Industry Research Association. Uh-huh. We're holding a conference at UCLA. Uh, next week on Thursday and Friday, August 10th and 11th. Uh, and we have a really interesting program where people are presenting papers on copyright protection and uh, are our copyright laws appropriate given the change in technology that we've seen on how streaming is changing the music industry on live live events. Uh, I'm giving a paper on the backgrounds of musicians. Uh, we were talking before about inequality. Music historically has been a route for people who came from underprivileged backgrounds to be able to move up. Uh, Is that still the case? Um, And the short answer is yes, it doesn't look like it's changed all that much. If I compare the backgrounds of uh, superstar musicians and CEOs, uh, the musicians come from more disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, But interestingly, if you look at who's successful over time in the music industry, uh, it tends to be those who are more middle class or more upper middle class even. So there's something about staying power which seems to be connected if, to the background. Have the, the technologists case. figured out the people have to get paid? That, that Granted, there's a revolution and we all have to sort out contracts and both sides of a contract. But have they figured out over 10 difficult years that, just as an example, through ASCAP, BMI, and CSEC, that songwriters just possibly may have to pay the rent? Um, Slowly, they're figuring this out. And I think this is an existential threat to the music industry as we know it. And it's not just the technologists, it's also our laws, which were developed for a time of player pianos. Yeah, Stephen Foster. So uh, we are seeing, uh, for the first time in several years, revenue rise for recorded music because of streaming. Uh, More and more people are signing up for the subscription services, not only in the U.S., but around the world. China is rapidly seeing growth and starting to protect intellectual property from music, which I think is a a very positive development. But we're a long way from having a sustainable, stable business model in the music industry. And that's part of the reason for forming this association. What does uh, does economic mobility or mobility generally within music tell you more broadly about um, economic mobility in the U.S. today? Well, it's awfully hard to make it to make the top. Make construe that, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I'll tell you something, David. I gave a speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame about how the whole economy is becoming like the music industry, a winner-take-all superstar economy. And in music, the top 1% are responsible for about half of the income. Uh, in the economy as a whole, the top 1% makes 25% of the income. Um, and the rest of the economy has kind of been mirroring the music industry in terms of the, uh, re- uh, the, the, the incomes uh, and the rewards from the economy uh, going so much to the top. So I think that's, that's a danger, and I think we can learn from the music industry about why that's been happening. And I think it is related mm-hmm. to the technology, that there's been kind of a flight to quality and, yeah. uh, and the top are, are generating much more attention than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Professor Krugel, thank you so much. Ben, I'm Professor of Economics and Public Affairs, Princeton uh, University. Just a real uh, pleasure and honor to have him with us on this Jobs Day.
We welcome on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television worldwide. We wait for the Gary Cohn interview. Certainly we'll get positive spin from Mr. Cohn to David Weston and John Farrell. We'll look for that later. But right now joining us, William Gross of Janice Anderson as we look at a better than good uh, jobs report. Bill, a little bit of enthusiasm in wage growth. Is it a wage growth that is enough to change Chair Yellen's dialogue into the September meeting? Well, maybe not, Tom. I mean, it's 0.3 as opposed to 0.2, but the YOY, as we call it, is 2.5% and didn't change. So, um, you know, obviously that's a positive, but not much. Uh, Jobs above 200,000, as you mentioned, is more than uh, expected during this point in time in the cycle. And so it's a you know, it's a rather strong economic report, but I don't think it moves markets much. Um, you know, job growth to me doesn't uh, seem to be stimulating economic growth and consumer spending yeah. like it has in prior cycles. Wages, as we talked about, are sort of anemic, and the mystery surrounding the participation rate sort of plays havoc with that. And uh, I think what seems most important now to policy rates in the U.S. and globally are core inflation rates, which... Uh, as you know, have declined from 1.5 percent in the U.S. Uh, uh, from 1.8.3 percent uh, over the last right. three months. And, um, you know, I, I think until we see a lift back to two percent in terms of the core inflation rate, the Fed uh, probably begins right. quantitative tightening, but won't raise short-term rates uh, this year. And we saw that with Governor Carney in a different calculus yesterday. Bill, on the jobs report, and I know David Gura wants to jump in here with questions on labor as well. I know that if Janice Henderson held a jobs fair today, 200,000 people would show up. How can you have a good labor economy and have 20,000-plus people show up to, to uh, put stuff in boxes for Amazon? It's almost as if we have two separate labor labor economies? Well, I think we do. We talked about the participation rate, or at least we've mentioned it, and uh, it's significantly lower than what it was, and that's the mystery to all central bankers. Um, it, to my way of thinking, it's demographically related. It's a structural problem. It suggests that uh, you know boomers are uh, getting older and older and that their training for uh, new tech jobs uh, is insignificant. And uh, therefore, they don't participate in the economy. doesn't mean they can't come back in, but uh, to my way of thinking, absent uh, significant job training, that they come back into those um, you know, lower-paying jobs that perhaps Amazon are providing. Mm. Uh, Bill, there's a, a Groundhog Day, Ned Ryerson-esque quality, uh, two jobs day over these last few months. The economy seems fine, fairly uh, normal. What's changed since the last jobs report to you when you look at the U.S. economy? Um, not much. Uh, you know, we, we, we've seen inflation stay low and maybe tick a little bit lower, which I think is significant. We've seen uh, strong earnings growth in terms of corporations, and that's uh, propelled the stock market. And we see continuing uh, participation by central banks, not by the Fed, but by central banks of up to a trillion dollars annually by the ECB and the BOJ. And so to my way of thinking, uh, yes, the U.S. economy is important, but the Euroland economy is more important in terms of their inflation rate, their growth rate, and what the ECB plans to do in terms of timing, uh, in terms of their quantitative easing procedures. It's really the money, uh, the checks that are being written and have been written for the past five to six years that are important in terms of financial markets. And once that stops to uh, move in at the same pace, then I think we're going to begin to see some change. But until then, 
uh, onward and upward. Bill, we have seen the U.S. president here uh, touting the strength of the stock market uh, right and left, commenting on Dow 22,000 a little earlier this week on Twitter uh, and in speeches. How much credit can he claim for how the market is doing today? <clears throat> Oh, I don't think much. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about regulation and deregulation, and I think there is where he can uh, claim at least some minor progress. It's only been six months, but to the extent that uh, regulations have been cut uh, and they have been cut significantly, I'm not sure exactly where and how they apply uh, in each particular state. But uh, you know, regulations and uh, deregulations. <coughs> Uh, I, I think have been the main boost. It hasn't certainly been for many of his policies they have been enacted yet. Bill, I thought your essay for Janice Henderson recently, Curveball, was absolutely superb. And you brought up a concept hey. that Stanley Fisher led with at the Economic Club of New York well over 18 months ago. And that is we miss proportional change in that short-term interest rates are set really, really low. And even if they come up a bit, that's a huge proportional or percentage change in the movement of short rates. Is that a risk of instability for central bankers in the coming months ahead? Yeah, I think it is, Tom. Uh, you know, it's a difficult concept to define. And, and typically, you know, central bankers have looked at changes in Fed interest rates or short-term interest rates in terms of their absolute magnitude. Um, you, you know, prior cycles have raised uh, Fed funds by three, four hundred yeah. basis points, in some cases more, going back to 81. But proportionately, uh, you know, since you start so low, you know, you <coughs> double and maybe even quadruple at, uh, you know, at a 2% level in terms of Fed funds. And that has a significant impact. Why? You know, common sense basically says that if you're paying a certain interest rate cover, uh, or margin, uh, and that margin quadruples uh, over the next few years, then that's a significant uh, right. problem for uh, interest rate coverage and for corporate profits or even individual stability. Well, as Governor Carney faced yesterday, and let's fold this right into the Bloomberg News conversation with Alan Greenspan of a few days ago, it's almost not stagflation, as Chairman Greenspan put it, but a new kind of stag and a new kind Afflation. What kind are they, Bill Gross? <laughs> well, I, um, you know, I've listened to uh, Chairman Greenspan over the last few days. My interpretation, you know, he, he's suggesting that there's a bubble. There's a bubble in uh, interest rates, and the bubble has to do with real interest rates, which are exceedingly low as are nominal rates, but it's real interest rates that are a problem. I would agree with them. Um, and I would say that uh, these real interest rates, low as they are, you know, ultimately, ultimately, which is the key, uh, create inflation, uh, which is the inflation part of it. Um, the stag has to do with uh, productivity. And uh, productivity, as we know, has been flatlining for the last five years. And unless we can uh, have a higher productivity level in combination with perhaps a higher inflation rate over the next six to 12 months, then we have, right. uh, you know, this stagflation where productivity is low as opposed right. to two or three percent. Well, Bill, we're going to come back with Bill Gross and continue. Thank you, Bloomberg Television, for being with us. If we wait for the day where the president tweets about Bill Gross. Here's the president. Excellent jobs <laughs> number just released. And I've only just begun. I have only just begun. Many jobs we stifling. That too. <laughs> many jobs stifling. Uh, regulations continue to fall movement back to the USA, All right. exclamation 
point. Bill Gross, can a president affect the jobs economy and the jobs report? Well, um, you know, perhaps long term. Uh, you know, we've talked, Tom, in the past about uh, what President Trump is uh, trying to do in terms of individual corporations. And uh, we've talked about individual states and uh, trying to bring jobs to those particular states. So, you know, I, I think a president can affect uh, those areas to some extent, but really, uh, you know, job growth, to my way of thinking, is a function of longer-term structural factors such as demographics and the expected return on capital, and uh, those are things that right. uh, I don't think <clears throat> Trump ever studied about in in, uh, in, in his master's right. thesis. Oh, I heard that. You heard that. You, you could get that. Grossian sarcasm there on <laughs> Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Bill, we are 10 years on into this financial crisis. It's an honor to have you with us every jobs day. And here we are 10 years on. You have been the clarion voice on financial repression. Let's revisit that right now. Do you assume that our enjoyment of low yield after any kind of inflation will be called financial repression for years? Oh, I think so. You know, that's uh, we've forgotten about Rogoff and Reinhardt, right? That's about seven or eight years ago when they uh, sort of reinvented the thesis. Uh, but uh, this has been uh, occurring for centuries. It, uh, financial repression for a long time occurred, you know, between the 1940s and uh, actually up until Volcker in 1979, where central banks and the Fed repressed uh, short-term interest rates relative to inflation. So financial repression has been with us. I think it'll continue to be with us. It has to do with the neutral rate of interest, uh, which is an amazing uh, topic uh, of interest by central bankers everywhere. And to the extent that the neutral rate of interest is far, far lower than what it was. And, and uh, Fed officials think it's below 0% in real terms, by the way. Um, then financial repression will continue to exist. It basically means that savers can't earn uh, anything close to the rate of inflation, let alone uh, something for uh, productivity growth and real growth. So, um, yes, and I, th I think it's a negative. You've mentioned how I talked about how it's a negative for financial institutions, uh, business models like insurance companies, pension funds, and even banks. And uh, <clears throat> one of these mm -hmm. days, one of these years, perhaps, uh, the economy is going to pay the price for financial repression as opposed to reaping the rewards. Bill, tell us what, what you see when you look at the yield curve now. We were speculating yesterday as Governor Carney spoke uh, in London about the degree to which uh, he's paying attention to, to the yield curve there. What do you see when you look at it? Well, I see a, uh, you know, a fairly normal uh, yield curve. It, it, it has been flattening, obviously, over the past three to four years, uh, depending upon how you measure it, whether it's twos, tens, or mm. twos, thirties, or even bills to 10-year uh, to uh, treasuries. There's been a significant flattening. Um, the, the question becomes, as I, rose in, uh, as I wrote in my investment outlook of a month ago, as to how flat it can go before uh, recession is threatened. And, and again, I yeah. think because of the leverage inherent in the U.S. economy and globally, uh, that you can't really flatten the curve much more or else uh, the danger for recession uh, increases. Bill, I want to rip up the script. A lot of people don't know, Bill, that you've written very thoughtful, very mathy articles for the CFA Institute. We see another hedge fund today go down in flames. This is the esteemed Andy Hall with a great track record in oil, 
oil strategy, oil trading, of course, iconic at Citigroup years ago. And Bill, this goes into, again, making big bets and getting something wrong. You've had the humility any number of times of being humbled by the markets. What is it about hedge funds and concentrated bets? When are we going to learn the value of a good level of diversification versus betting, knowing at some point you're going to be wrong, 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 big? Well, I think uh, in many cases, markets do and individuals do know the value of diversification and certainly even pension funds in terms of that uh, 60-40 or 50-50 mix. But hedge funds, almost by their nature, are uh, levered players. And to the extent that leverage is injected into a market, whether it's a bet on gold or whether it's a bet on oil, one way or the other, then there's a significant potential, I guess, for damage and destruction. I used to, when I played blackjack, Tom, I used to play blackjack, and there used to be a rule called gambler's ruin. And, yes. and you couldn't bet, uh, you couldn't bet more than one fiftieth of the stake of the chips on your table, you know, before uh, you were right. being threatened by what they call gambler's ruin, which is a streak of bad luck. Well, this is so important, folks, and we have the honor of Ed Thorpe of Massachusetts Institute of Technology in with Barry Ritholtz at recently, and I've interviewed Ed Thorpe, and Bill, you and I have read Ed Thorpe cover to cover almost as religion. To our listeners who don't have the sophistication of Andy Hall or Bill Gross or John Tucker, the basic idea here of diversification, how do you do that 10 years on from this financial crisis with the odd fixed income market that we have? How does Bill Gross diversify? Well, you diversify carefully and and you diversify, Tom, uh, with a sense of of trades, carry trades, trades that supposedly yield, um, you know, a positive number, whether it be a spread or whether it be an mm-hmm. interest rate, a, a 10-year treasury at 2.25% or whatever. And you do it very carefully because all carry <coughs> trades, all interest rates, spreads and risk premiums are compressed. And so you have to take that into consideration in totality. You can't just talk about stocks and right. bonds because stocks and bonds are both artificially elevated. And so what you do, uh, the, the essence of the short answer to your question, Tom, is you, you know, begin to raise much more cash because ga- cash is the ultimate cushion, I guess, in terms right. of a, a risk market. <clears throat> is your Mexican trade tired? You've been arbitraging Mexican yields here and there and everywhere. I- have we seen enough of an EM and a Mexico move where you've got to go find something else to do with your marginal cash? Yeah, I think so. I I was in, um, you know, Mexican uh, linkers, so to speak, uh, tips, Mexican tips, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they yield 3.5% real. Um, You know, I I got out of those about a month ago, but, um, you know, Mexico still has a very undervalued peso, especially in real terms, uh, and especially when you compare it to the, you know, the Big Mac index, which the economist runs, um, you know, their Big Macs are very, yeah. very cheap, like two and a half bucks versus oh, five Tom knows. bucks Tom in knows. the United States. And so <laughs> ultimately, the peso, the peso, the Mexican peso has a way to go in terms of strengthening relative to the dollar, and that's the, right. the biggest bet I would met in, in Mexico. What would be your counsel for Republicans in Washington to jumpstart after what they've been through. What's your advice to senators, to representatives up for re-election in 2018? They got to rebuild, they got to restructure. What's the Bill Gross prescription to get Washington to assist America? 
Well, my prescription it, it is uh, more of a populist as opposed to a corporate type of prescription. It's not the re Republican mantra, unfortunately. But my wave of the future, Tom, and that's five or ten years out, and it depends on the next president, of course. But my wave of the future continues to believe that populism and that universal income uh, and universal benefits are really the wave of the future because uh, you know people are, are being replaced by technology and by robotization and to the extent that they can't find yeah. jobs they need help and I think one of the biggest problems with government is that yes they've embraced technology and yes uh, corporations have ruined yeah. that wave but uh, but governments have failed to take care of people that have been displaced by yeah. them. And so that's what I would say to Republicans. Get a little more Democratic. Bill Gross, thank you so much. And may you speak to David Gura for a lengthy time yeah. next time since <laughs> I hogged the conversation. Totally fine. Terribly. Bill Gross, uh, he's an uh, agent for Colin Kaepernick as he tries to find <laughs> a job in the NFL as well. Right now, to our David Weston and John Farrow. Here's David. No one in the country more focused on them than Gary Cohn, director of the President's National Economic Council. Gary joins us now from the White House. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Gary, give us a sense. We've already heard from the President in a tweet. He thinks these are really good numbers, although there's more to come. Give us your sense, and the President's for that matter, about how you look at these numbers, and specifically the number of jobs added, the participation rate, and the wage growth. So, so look, David, I, the president's completely right. These are good numbers. 209,000 non-farm payroll jobs, unemployment rate down to 4.3 percent, down to a 16-year low. We're bringing Americans back into the workforce, and that's what the president set out to do, and that's what the president is doing. That is our objective. And we've done that without our major policy initiatives being able to take place. Number one policy initiative to deregulate the U.S. environment. We still haven't gotten most of our uh, nominees through the regulatory process. We got a couple through yesterday in a big package of nominees that went through. We got some of our CFTC members through. We didn't get our FERC members through. We didn't get other members through. When we get those members through, we're going to be able to continue deregulating markets and the environment so we can, can continue to invest capital in the United States and can continue to create great, high-paying jobs in America. This is all about not only growing the economy, but growing the economy so we can create great, high-paying jobs for Americans and bring more and more people back to the workforce. That's what the president's committed to do. That's what I'm committed to do. So let's talk about those high paying jobs because wage growth is up about two and a half percent year over year. Yeah. A lot of economists yeah. still find that rather tepid. It's good, but it's not good enough. How do you explain this phenomenon where we have really robust employment? Some people think full employment and yet we're not seeing the wage growth. So it is. On the 12-month, we're at two and a half. The one month was three-tenths of a percent. So the one month is annualizing higher than the 12 months, which is, which is interesting news to us. We spent time this morning discussing what that means, if that's a, a new trend. We would obviously like to see some wage inflation in the system. Wage inflation means that we're putting more income in consumers' pockets. When consumers have more income and then we lower their tax rates on top of that, they'll have more money to spend driving more and more economic growth. So that's 
that's really what we want to see. We need to create the jobs. We need to create the jobs by getting rid of the regulation that's bogging down industry. We need to reform the tax code so we can incentivize companies to invest in America. That's what we're trying to do. We're totally committed to doing it, and we're, we feel confident that we can get that done between now and the end of the year. Gary, you've inherited an economy where the headline numbers for the labour market look really quite solid and they point towards a tight labour market and we haven't seen the wage growth we thought we would get over the previous few years and it's starting to creep in. But I just wonder whether you think there's a lot more spare capacity, a lot more slack in the labour market than the headline numbers suggest. I think there is some slack in the labor market. I think we can get the participation rate higher. I think we can bring more Americans back to work. By creating the jobs and creating the incentives and make it easier for small and medium-sized businesses to grow, make it easier for businesses to start by making credit available, by getting rid of regulation, we do think that there is much more potential to bring people back into the labor force. And Gary, do you think those issues, you've pointed out some structural issues, but do you think really predominantly the issues are quite cyclical? Uh, you know, we argue that, that all the time. What we're committed on right now is to create the best possible jobs environment that we can create. And we know, we really do know, that when people think about investing capital, and investing capital is what you need to grow an economy, people look at a couple fundamental factors. Regulation and taxes are two of the main driving factors they look at, and those are two factors that we are spending enormous amount of time on making better for anyone that wants to invest capital in the United States. Gary, you raised the taxes. Uh, we've talked to you before about the plan. You came out with the group of six, as it's called, uh, with an outline of a plan. Where are you on that plan? When are we going to see the specific legislative language? So as you're right, the group of six continues to meet. We put out a, a, a notice last week that shows how well coordinated the six of us are, how we all agree on the skeleton of the tax plan. We're now working quite actively with the House Ways and Means Committee and the Finance Committee in, in the Senate to actually get some muscle structure on the skeleton to really drive tax reform to where we, where we have to drive it. We're going to continuously meet over August and hopefully be able to deliver a comprehensive tax bill early in the fall. Is that September 15? It's early in, that's early in the fall, but there's a lot of other dates that are early in the fall as well. And how confident are you at this point, given all the difficulties that have been occurring up in Congress, that you'll be able to get this through this year, as you said before, is really your goal? Look, I think the members of Congress understand how important tax reform is. And if we're really going to drive the economy and drive economic growth and get from the muddling 2% to 3%, that we have to do something structural to the U.S. economy. The structural things we have to do, and I've talked about reg reform, so I'll talk about taxes, we really have to change our tax rate. We cannot be substantially higher than the OECD average tax rate out there. At a 35% tax rate against a 23% OECD average tax rate, you know, 13% higher taxes than the OECD average just does not make us competitive. We've got to get in line with the rest of the world. We've got to entice capital to be invested in the United States. Gary, we caught up with Mohamed Alarian, a man, of course, that you know well, and he talked about the much-needed handoff from monetary policy to, to fiscal. Do you think we've relied too much on monetary policy in a country like the United States for too long? Look, I don't think this is a U.S. issue. I think the globe's been dealing with the whole monetary fiscal policy issue since the 2008 financial crisis. Central banks did what they were supposed to do. But we do have to transition the economy and, and the system to a more normalized system. And does that require a handoff from monetary policy to fiscal, Gary? Is that where you guys can help? 
Yeah, we can help. We can help by removing barriers. We can help by making it easier for capital flow into the United States. We can get a more competitive tax system here. We can remove regulation that stops capital from coming into the United States. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Gary, as you go back to your office there in the White House behind it, behind you right now, what is will be your number one priority? And today, are you more confident in achieving that or less than the day you walked in? David, my number one priority from now to the end of the year is taxes. My second priority is taxes. And if you're confused, my third priority is taxes. Gary Cohn, the U.S. National Economic Council Director. We didn't get to ask him about what John it was. John Farrow and David Weston uh, in conversation from the White House lawn with Mr. Cohn of the National Economic Council as well. To summarize here, a great week. Thanks to all of our team uh, for their support, particularly an exhaustive, uh, uh, exhausted team, I should say, in Washington, which has just really done a, a, a great job uh, for us. Special thanks to Kevin Cirilli, our, our uh, chief Washington correspondent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.